0: Thank you for tuning in to KBRA Podcast for our first edition of Beauty Watch. My name is Karen Daly, and I look after Kroll Bond Rating Agency's public finance and financial guarantee ratings. As many of you are aware, KBRA is a global rating agency with innovative approaches to providing transparent, timely credit ratings and research. Our podcasts are an excellent source for intimate briefings directly from our knowledgeable team and special guests. I'm very excited to welcome Kate Long today for a discussion on the challenges of the COVID-19 crisis, the role of rating agencies, thoughts on bankruptcy and Puerto Rico. So let me introduce Kate to all of you. We are all looking forward to what she has to say. Kate Long is the founder of Puerto Rico Clearinghouse, a consultancy for Puerto Rico bondholders and other stakeholders. As a municipal bonds writer for Reuters, Kate predicted the insolvency of the Puerto Rico Commonwealth in March 2012 and has covered the fiscal, political, and legal challenges of the territory for six years. She worked extensively with staff for the U.S. Congress in the development and passage of the Puerto Rico Oversight Management and Economic Stability Act, or PROMESA. Kate worked in Washington on the development of Dodd-Frank and federal laws regulating credit rating agencies. For Dodd-Frank, she led an open source financial reform project for Hill staff, her expertise lies in analyzing and clearly explaining complex financial topics. Her work shaped the laws governing credit rating agencies, and she was successful in having equivalent disclosure of underwriting information to rate it adapted for asset-backed securities. Kate also successfully lobbied for federal law to require the standard application of credit rating symbols between asset classes within a credit rating agency. Kate holds two US patents for the standardization and visualization of fixed income market data, which she is currently commercializing. In the early 2000s, Kate was one of the bond market leaders who migrated the protocol for electronic trading of equities FIX, to fixed income. Electronic training is a rapidly growing sector within the secondary fixed income market. Prior to founding her own firm, she worked for British and Dutch investment bank, ING Barings. Kate received a BA from Goddard College in Plainful Vermont. A very well, warm welcome, Kate. And now let's turn to our first question. We've both been through many credit cycles, but I can't say that I've experienced anything quite like this. In your opinion, what are investors looking for, given the tsunami of information coming at them every day?
1: Um, hello, Karen, and I really appreciate you doing this and being invited to chat with you today. Um and yes, absolutely, been through numerous credit cycles. This one is unique in that the economic activity just fell off a cliff, basically within a week or two. Generally, in, in cycles, we see you know a slowdown in activity and weaker firms having cash flow problems. But it you know in this turn, every entity, every obligor had immediate cash flow issues. Um, as, a, as the you know, the president ordered basically the economy to shut. So, you know, I think for investors, the primary question is how sensitive are various obligors to just you know immediate halt in cash flow. You know, we have reserve level issues. We have you know flexibility on the operating expense side, and both people that are regular you know regularly look at credits, and then more just general investor types in the public just suddenly saying what happens to mta when you know everybody stops writing it like they don't have any money so the variety of this cycle this credit shock cycle is just so unique that people people almost didn't have the paradigm to think about you know the information that they needed and then i guess you know as a follow-on to that i would say How did you look at liquidity as you were looking at Alba which is the cash flow issue? How did you look at that? Well, I'm going to give you a little background on why we've been
0: writing about liquidity so much and how it arose. So when the lockdown began, we participated in many investor calls, which we do as a matter of course. And without exception, the first question or two was about issuer liquidity. As you said, the cessation of economic activity was so sudden and so severe that the absolute worst case scenarios were being contemplated. So the question is, that that was posed to us in many calls, is how much breathing room do issuers really have how long can things go on like this? These were the really urgent questions that even now, no one can answer fully. For example, we know that when enough people feel comfortable getting on planes to restore prior levels of passenger traffic, you know, that'll be a big help. But it that is still uncertain. Things are better, but Obviously, not back to where they were, but we do think it's possible to put together analysis to frame a thoughtful dialogue. And so what I concluded from these calls is that investors were having difficulty putting their hands on information they needed immediately. So what we did is for a variety of asset classes and credits that we rate, we published articles outlining cash and reserve funds. And then mm-hmm. um, I'm gonna talk a little bit about this later. When information became available for the CARES Act, we added those into our analysis, both the commentary and we're putting it in our surveillance and new issue reports. So we're gonna publish this information on the CARES Act receipts that issuers have received When we can get that information, because depending on the ASTIC class that you're in, it's not that easy to get that information. And so we're making an extra effort to either put it into commentary or put it into our rating reports and surveillance reports.
1: And that would be breakout of federal funds to specific types of issuers? Like airports or something?
0: Yes, airports, sales tax, you know, sales, mm-hmm. mass transit funded by sales tax, that type of thing. And then, you know, mm-hmm. as we, as we rate individual credits, we're adding them to the reports. So as I said, for certain asset classes, it's easy to find. For others, not so much. And then this, depending on what asset class you're in, it comes in at intervals. So we're discussing that with with issuers as, as well. You know, look, it, it's really interesting. The great thing about the internet is that all the information is there. The bad thing about the internet is finding it. So, and, some, and you know, sometimes we have to call. Sometimes we, we will call mm-hmm. issuers and check figures and do that Again, because the first question that investors are interested in still is liquidity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that ranges from reserve funds to cash on hand to our uh, CARES Act receipts. Mm-hmm. So. I know that you've been involved in commenting on the rating agencies and looking at rating agencies and the kind of research and work that, that they do. Okay, what do you think rating agencies should be doing during uh, an unprecedented event like COVID-19?
1: Right. So a lot of the work I did with the Congress and the SEC on rating agencies was, I mean, initially was pushing this idea that. Rating agencies be allowed to devise their own methodologies and then publish those instead of there was some you know belief this is following Enron and Wilcom that the government like the SEC should stipulate what the methodologies of the rating agencies are and so I've always been very much more free market kind of approach to raters and you know based on this idea that you guys create a methodology to look at an asset class or subclasses and then follow that and be transparent in that. And my question I guess would be what do you do now that you have this paradigm or this methodology and then you get this freak one-off event that essentially just you know blows a hole in how you look at how, how you look at the issuers like how do you respond to that in terms of what a methodology your stated methodology is? Well, you know, it's interesting. Our
0: methodologies were designed to go through a credit cycle. And so, you know, as I said, our our methodologies are really designed to withstand rating cycles, not change during rating cycles. So a couple of things, and I don't think we've boxed ourselves into a corner, but let me start with just how we think about our methodologies. First of all, They need to be simple. Any college graduate should be able to understand a credit report and a rating methodologies. We don't think that methodologies are useful if you need to divine their meaning. Uh, We've got. uh, uh, Yeah, um, you know, I've been doing this a long time, and. If I can't understand what's in a methodology and a report, I know we have to start over. But I will say to you, Kate, that we have a deep analytic bench. This is not our first rodeo. You know, that helps. A couple of things about our methodologies. We don't use formulas. We don't use scoring. It allows for judgment for rating determinants. And our rating determinants get balanced. They're not weighted. That's, mm-hmm. uh, that's an important thing point to understand about our methodologies. And I will say, I've been asked this before, and it's a really good question. It's a fair question. We have not had a philosophical change in our methodologies. We've had data updates, clarifications, maybe we're standardizing language, maybe we're being more specific, but there's not a philosophical shift in the public finance rating methodologies. We don't believe in mm-hmm. scorecards. We don't think that you wind up with ratings that reflect risk. You haven't asked me about rating ceilings, but we think that rating ceilings distort <laughs> risk. It would appear that we're the lone voice on this now. So it's a really, you know, interesting question. You know, have are we in a pickle because of COVID-19? The answer is no. You know, we look at everything on a case-by-case basis. I think you know that for every issue we write about, either surveillance or new issue, we look at bankruptcy, we look at statutes. So the issue of have we, again, painted ourselves in the corner? No, we have the needed flexibility because our folks have been through many business cycles. Now, that's not to say that there isn't heightened risk in the market. Many traditionally low risk categories of the muni market are going to and are and will continue to experience stress. But we think that the municipal default risk will remain mostly idiosyncratic. Mm -hmm. We obviously acknowledge the increased pressure from pandemic related economic disruptions that could lead to a higher uh, number of municipal defaults including bankruptcies, but our our thought again is that these instances will be mostly idiosyncratic. So that was a lot of words on to answer your question, but that's sort of our thinking on methodologies. So one of the things that I'd like to talk to you about is bankruptcy. And before I ask you a question on bankruptcy, I would like to take a moment to remember Jim Spiato, who taught all of us so much about bankruptcy through his brilliance, patience, and bottomless kindness. We miss him. So, Mm -hmm. Kate, once again, given all the issues attended to COVID-19, the bankruptcy issue has raised its head. And again, (laughs) it's raised its head because of the stress, experience through many credit sectors. What's your view of the credit impact of the uncertainty surrounding the assured case and special revenues? On the
1: 928 issue, this is the assured um, decision The the Title Three court and Puerto Rico Title Three court said that special revenues did not have to be paid during the pendency of a bankruptcy. I think I don't love the decision. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I think that people are just going to have to adjust unless one of the insurers can get the Supreme Court to take it up. They've denied cert twice and back in a short filed petition with the Supreme Court to look at it and both refused. I think right now, the probably the more pressing question is the attempt by the Puerto Rico Oversight Board to invalidate the highway's debt and the convention center and periphery of the Rum bonds debt in the puerto rico bankruptcy where we have revenue bonds secured by specific streams of tax revenues that are identified in the official statements and all the bond documents and the oversight board just says they're nothing that that documentation is nothing and that in fact it's those special revenues are just unsecured claims, then they want to pay them four cents on the dollar. Um, that's an astonishing, you know, position on the p- part of the oversight board. And one would, you know, I guess ask, like, you know, why would anyone knowing the municipal market do that? And I think the truth is that, you know, the oversight board led by Judge Gonzalez, who oversaw the Enron and Chrysler bankruptcies, doesn't care about the municipal market. And you know, really, honestly, just wants to try and break the lanes. So, I think that you know, the uncertainty here is this very super aggressive attempt on the part of the oversight board to bust these lanes. That's now in a what actual litigation in the Title III process is a what's called a preliminary lift stay hearing, uh, where the insurers have asked the court to lift. The litigation stay to allow them to take their claims to another court and litigate the validity of the liens. This is a very seminal moment, I think, for the bank for, for the municipal bond market. I don't know. You, you might have more to say. I think, but on the assured decision, I think you're referring to the 928. I think that's just something we're going to have to live with. Yeah. Um And hopefully, on one level it speeds. But one thing I will say is that. A debtor, a municipal debtor that's got attorneys that want to string out the process forever will use that as a cudgel to beat on, you know, whoever the creditors are that own those special revenues debt because in the meantime, you're not getting paid. So uh, that's a that's a bad outcome. You know, some people suggested and I'm sure Jim Spiato, who I miss a lot, too, would say, you know, this is a first circuit decision because Puerto Rico's in the first circuit Boston court. And it might not necessarily apply to, you know, a bankruptcy in California. But I think that there's so little municipal bankruptcy law that the courts tend to look pretty closely at what other courts have the decisions they've come to.
0: Well, I I'm happy to share our our thoughts about bankruptcy because we write a lot about it in both, as you know, our reports. Every section has every report rather has, has a section on bankruptcy. which investors really read very closely. But, you know, I think what I'll do for the audience is just give a quick background and talk about what we've done, right? So, you know, back in April of 2019, we commented on the implications of the ruling by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit regarding the treatment of the Puerto Rico Highway Special Revenue Bonds. So, as mm-hmm. you said, that decision is now final with the Supreme Court's denial of cert. And what the Court of Appeals ruled in summary is, during, is that during the bankruptcy case, special revenue bond payments are merely optional and not mandatory <laughs> under the special revenue provisions of Chapter 9 of the Bankruptcy Code. We also noted in that piece that some states like California, who did mention California, have laws addressing and restricting use of specific streams of revenues, such as taxes levied for California school districts. And we discussed yeah. this, yeah, we discussed the significance of those laws as well as how they may inform KBRA's analytic process. So rather than throwing our hands up, the denial assert made us think about and look more closely at state laws. We think this helps the market think through these issues. So, let me talk a little about federalism because it's important. We know that the principle of federalism establishes the dual sovereignty of state and federal governments in the United States. And while we all learned about this in high school, we haven't really spoken about it very much in the municipal community and what it means for credit. So now I'm going to take us back to high school, but only the classroom. Uh, Don't get too worried. Um, So what our federal system of government provides is uh, robust powers to the states, including the control as to how their respective local governments and agencies may raise revenues, what those revenues may be used for, and the basis on which such public entities may secure and issue bonds. Mm-hmm. Because, because this concept of federalism is foundational in our form of government, where appropriate, we will include state laws in our analysis, including giving consideration to the significance of state law and federal bankruptcy proceedings in the evaluation credit and the assignment of public finance uh, debt ratings. And we've already written about this with respect to California school districts. So I'm just going to give you the punchline on California school districts because I was uh, pretty broad uh, five minutes ago. And we believe it's highly unlikely that the bankruptcy court would interfere or contravene the provisions of California school district financing law given, number one the U.S. constitutional restraints on the bankruptcy judge as a federal judge in Chapter 9, and two, the provisions in the bankruptcy code that implement those federal constitutional limitations, which were enacted precisely because the original version of Chapter 9 provided control to the bankruptcy judge over state and local issuers that did not respect federalism and therefore the supreme court struck it down as unconstitutional in the 1930s we you know again these this course of events have led us to do what we're always doing but again when the situation is appropriate we take a deep dive
1: into state laws mm. well, so as, as it, I was to say as it should be that I mean, the debt is issued under state law, right? And then you have this federal overlay of a bankruptcy proceeding. But the federal overlay should respect, you know, what the state undertook.
0: Yeah, and so you know, it's it's not easy. It's not straightforward. It's not simple. It's extra work. But again, when it makes sense, that that's something that we're going to do over and above. I might say what we've already done. So if you look at our our reports, especially the original reports on the San Diego Unified School District and the Los Angeles Unified School District, when we assign those ratings after examining those ratings of AAA, after examining the state laws, there is a long discussion and
1: explanation Mm
0: -hmm. of of our reasoning in there.
1: So this is where Puerto Rico differs in that the Oversight Board asserts that ProMESA preempts state law, Puerto Rico Commonwealth law. Congress did not intend that. I can assure you, having worked and negotiated and, and helped move that legislation through, the specific language in the statute is that the fiscal plan dev- de- developed by the Oversight Board has to respect lawful liens. And Obviously, that's a, a state, you know, lean, established under state law or commonwealth law. If a state decided to approach Congress to create some kind of bankruptcy authority, this is a critical issue that needs to be negotiated in statute, federal statute that would give, create some kind of framework for a state. And that is, does a federal bankruptcy framework preempt state laws in terms of, you know, validating liens or the creation and, you know, security interest in liens. It's a fine point, I know it's like a particularly fine point that you would appreciate, Karen, but it is essential as we look at, you know, weak credits going forward and how they get worked out um, and then what kind of law that Congress creates to do that in.
0: I am not aware of any movement afoot to Mm-mm. amend the bankruptcy law. So no. uh, uh, I know people have been talking about it, but I'm, I'm not aware of any movement afoot to do that. So, because we know you write extensively about Puerto Rico, what does the future look like for Puerto Rico?
1: That's a great question. I mean, sum it up here. Puerto Rico has not filed audited financials since 2016 or FY16. They have increased spending since they entered bankruptcy. They stopped paying some of their debt in 2015. They've cut taxes twice. They basically don't want to own up to this debt they have and are happy to let the oversight board kind of carry the spirit and try and invalidate it. I think that that will leave a particularly bad feeling among retail investors, mainland investors. I think that mutual, high yield mutual funds will buy the debt all day long because whether it's rated or not, because they have, you know, they can assume, you know, they can have part of their holdings in unrated debt. And as long as two coupon's high, they don't care. But I think that generally, I mean, I've also done other work for, you know, large investment groups that want to make substantial capital investments on the island. And, you know, the uncertainty and the sort of a tax code that moves around constantly, you know, sort of this unwillingness to, to create a more efficient government that operates more like a mainland government. I just think that it casts a shadow long term on the, you know, opportunities for Puerto Rico. There is a very unique caveat, which is that we have about, you know, 60 or 70 billion dollars of federal money coming in to do recovery work for Maria and Irma and the earthquakes and now a bunch of this COVID money. The controls on this money are so tight, so tight, that it may create, spur kind of a more conscientious use of public money than what what has existed in the island government for decades and you know that's an odd hope but i just know you know we have now a monitor from the u.s department of education we have a federal police monitor we have you know this recovery money we have a federal monitor from the you know u.s hud housing and urban development and they are putting clamps, very strict clamps on the way this money is appropriated and how contracts are given out. And then I'll just mention one more thing, which is something when Promesa was being developed, the guys asked me if anything I thought should be included in the law. And my first ask was that all the contract, the text of all the contracts executed by the government be put online. They already had a database, which listed the amount in the contract party But now the full text of all contracts are online, and citizens, public interest groups, and journalists use that extensively to track who's getting contracts. They map it to if those parties are giving political contributions to the political parties. And there's this, you know, what I would call more... Radical transparency operating in the government there, which has sort of empowered the people, which is basically where it has to go. Because the government has hid information and, you know, misrepresented information for a very long time. So, you know, there's things more along those lines that I think that in terms of how I view the island and its opportunity to become stable and grow, you know, that I consider more important. The debt restructuring is all legal stuff. It's just people fighting over money. But in terms of getting the island on some kind of more sure footing, I think that those kind of things are really helpful for the long run. So I guess it's kind of a follow, you know, closing question from me, Karen. I would ask, you know, what kind of challenges as a as you all fa- facing as a Raider due to this crisis? And are there things that you've added to the process that will help investors try and kind of swim through this really murky period?
0: That's a great question. And what we've done immediately is start our really publishing and writing about issues surrounding COVID nineteen. But let me let me just step back and just talk about what we think happened and how we think we can help investors. So, you know, what the interesting, the interesting set of circumstances here is, and what the country has experienced, is, is different from the Great Recession. And let's be honest, as a group, only scientists saw this coming. So <laughs> it, it really makes you you stop and think. Um, This was a recession, the root cause of which was the pandemic, not intrinsic weakness in the economy. And you you started off your remarks by talking about that. But our first challenge and what we're doing to help investors think about risk in a logical, thoughtful way. So a couple of things. We don't think it's helpful to put everything on negative outlook. Even in the midst of these terrible circumstances, we need to acknowledge the following. There are risk and credit distinctions between bond sectors and within bond sectors. The other challenges are the unknown, right? So there's a whole host of unknowns. How long will it take to get the pandemic fully under control? The New York Times had an article today that 21 states are experiencing increase in cases? Will there be a second occurrence in the fall? Will there be a second occurrence sooner than that as a result of crowding in recent demonstrations? When do we think all consumers believe it's safe to, uh, to be in crowds, which is going to impact passenger traffic, economically sensitive taxes, college enrollments, elective surgeries? And to tell you the truth, Kate, simple doctor's visits, right. Then we have, data. Yeah. Then we have da- data challenges, okay? The lack of real-time data for a number of sectors is really a problem. So we're in hurricane season, I'm gonna borrow a phrase that meteorologists use, and it's the cone of uncertainty. This data lag widens and lengthens the cone of uncertainty. What do I mean? If you take an example of sales tax, right, in general, sales tax collections are reported on a lag basis. So why is that a problem? Sales tax administration varies across jurisdictions as you'd expect, and with businesses that collect sales taxes, typically forwarding collections to states, which in turn distribute revenue allocations to local governments. This process takes time meaning that it's going to take it may take several months before we have clarity on the depth of sales tax declines during and immediately after lockdown. It's also mm. a major headache for issuers performing forecasts of their revenues. So mm-hmm. and this is gets to the question you asked me earlier, so I want I want to answer it specifically now. So what we decided to do in the absence of real-time data, is examine the amount... I keep on talking about breathing room. The amount of breathing room <laughs> our rated mm-hmm. sales tax credits have in a commentary that we published on April 20th. And in it, we noted the declining coverage needed to reach one times coverage on 2021 debt service. And we talked about the presence of reserve funds. So... Mm-hmm. To sort of wind back to how you originally phrased the question to me, we are trying to research and write about the immediate concerns in front of all of us with data that we put together. So again, you know, it's not that this data isn't, or this analysis is, so challenging to do. It's that people don't have the time, investors to do it. And so we're mm-hmm. doing it. And you'll see many, many articles with the headline of COVID-19 where we examine all sorts of things. We examine the the balance sheet of airports. We've done it many times. Well, as I said earlier, write <laughs> about the receipt of CARES Act monies. It's not... So simple, depending on the asset class, to get that information. So I hope I answer
1: your question. Yeah, that's a great answer. It's a- excellent. I think also uh, just for users or investors, you know, to have a commentary color in between just a rating an outlook change or a rating change is hugely important, mm-hmm. right? Because they want to either know to buy or sell these bonds before we get a distinct rating event. And I think the color, the context and the color is hugely valuable.
0: Thank you. Well, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're, we're um, you know it's uh, everybody's got a very challenging job right now and what we're trying to do is through our commentary, help investors think through the issues that are facing them. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, Kate, it's been a great, great conversation. It was a delight having you as a guest. I want to thank you for your participation and your remarks, and hopefully we'll be able to welcome you back on on another podcast.
1: That sounds great. Thank you very much, Karen. I appreciate it. Thank you.